recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Getting a Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight I'll be alone. Sword Brethren couldn't make it tonight. He's a little under the weather. I will be presenting Against the Paul Ashers, part 16. Since I began this series, I've been challenging Paul Bashers to get in touch with me and, and if they had anything that they would like to see raised on this program, if they had any issues, they could spell them out, that they could um, send them to me in an email. They could go to the contact page at christogany.org and, and drop them to me there, that, they could, um, that there's a lot of ways to reach me. I haven't heard from anyone. I haven't heard from one Paul Basher since I started this series. I find that unfortunate. I even offered, and the offer still stands, that if they could indeed be civil, I would have them here and discuss their issues concerning Paul of Tarsus with them here. I haven't had one Paul Basher. Now, I know that not everybody in Christian identity listens to my programs. I understand that. But some of these segments have had nearly 4,000 listeners and some of them have only had a, a couple of hundred. That, that's I could never imagine why some programs get downloaded a lot more frequently than others. Sometimes I think I do programs that are real good and they hardly get downloaded. And sometimes I do programs I think are terrible and, and they get thousands of downloads. I can't figure it out. I never will. But that's besides the point. I would safely assume that many of the Paul Bashers in Christian Identity have heard these podcasts, and none of them have reached me. Not one of them has sent me one email with an issue that they would like to see discussed in the series or, or, or with an offer to discuss anything here as this series runs its course. I suspect that this series will have a lot more segments. It's going to be ongoing. Even when I run out of material, I will probably accumulate more material and present it at some future date. Because the Paul Bashers are wrong. They're simply wrong. They're operating on bad translations. They're taking it for granted, while most of them admit that there are plenty of mistranslations elsewhere in the King James Bible, they're taking it for granted that somehow Paul is translated accurately in the King James Version of the Bible, or in any other version. The newer versions are worse. No, Paul of Tarsus is not translated accurately at all, but that's only the first hurdle to understanding Paul of Tarsus. The next hurdle is to understand the relationship of the children of Israel to Yahweh their God and to his law under the new covenant. And that's something that most Paul bashers misunderstand. They take the 180 degree polar angle that the antinomians have and insist that we're bound by the law when indeed, with the death of Yahweh on the cross, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, we are not bound by the law. Daniel chapter 9 proves that. There are other scriptures that could be demonstrated that prove that. We are not bound by the law. If we were bound by the law, we would all be guilty of death under the law. That's the message of the entire new covenant that the children of Israel would receive mercy from Yahweh, that that mercy would be complete, that that mercy would be without exception. 
that he would cleanse all of our sins which we have sinned against him. That's a matter of many, many prophecies in Isaiah or in Jeremiah or in Ezekiel. That's a matter of the words of Christ. That's a matter of the parables. The Paul Bashers, what they really miss is that Christians under the New Covenant, and Paul of Tarsus taught this in Romans chapter 3, Christians, Christian Israelites, because Christianity only applies to the seed of Abraham through Jacob, through Jacob Israel, Christians have grace under the law, and because they have that grace, because they have that mercy from God, and we all need it, we're all sinners. As James the Apostle says, he who is guilty of violating one point of the law is liable to the whole law. Because we have that mercy from Christ, we should seek all the more to establish the law to establish it in our hearts and to live by it. That's the message of Paul in Romans chapter 3. The law is good and the law is just. And every time we sin and we recognize our sin, we admit, we acknowledge that Yahweh our God is good and that his law is just. And we're going to sin again because we're men. And for that reason, we need the mercy of our God. That's what the Paul bashers are missing in the Christian message, at least many of them. That's sad, because they themselves are all sinners. He who is without sin makes God a liar. And that's not the words of Paul, that's the words of the Apostle John. This is part 16 of our series addressing the Paul-bashing articles of Clayton Douglas. Actually, the first four parts address the Paul-bashing articles of H. Graber. First name still a mystery to me. Jaime, I guess. Here we will commence from where we left off in our last program in the series with Douglas's long article, The Seduction, Judeo-Christianity or Pauline Christianity. Saul of Tarsus, Paul, A Different View, which Douglas published in the December 2003 issue of his Free American News magazine. The material being presented here tonight first appeared in Clifton Emma Heiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters, numbered 100 and 101, which were published in August and September of 2006. The material also appears at Christagenia.org as part of a lengthy compilation entitled William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. When we addressed Douglas's article, we broke it up into reference points. We reproduced the entire article, no matter how deliberating that was. And it was. And it is still, in this series, parts of it get quite deliberating. And it's, we reproduced the entire article and we broke it up into reference points. For anyone who's following along on Kustigenia as, as I present these articles, I understand that a lot of my answers have been off the cuff, that they, I haven't really followed my original answers. I, 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 the spirit of my original answer is there, but I, I've broken from the context just too long. 
just to abbreviate certain things and to, and to still keep it interesting. We're at reference number 42 right now for those who are following along. At that point in his article, Clayton Douglas stated or wrote, one should not embellish or dress up Christianity. It has waged a war to the death against this higher type of man. A quote from Nietzsche. Nietzsche, I'm probably butchering his name. I was just corrected on it by a by a um, a European listener, a, a wonderful young woman who's in Spain actually studying right now, and, and she's studying German and and she corrected me on a pronunciation. I, I I'd say Nietzsche, and, and of course that's wrong because I don't know German from a hole in a wall, even though I I have German blood, right? Nietzsche, I think, is what she told me. And the source for that is the Antichrist, chapter 5, line 1. And Douglas goes on to state, I regard Christianity as the most fatal and seductive lie that has ever existed. Again, quoting Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche. Paul understood the need for the lie. Again, quoted Nietzsche, chapter 47, line 4 of the same book, the Antichrist. He goes on to say, Christianity was the vampire of the Imperium Romanum, the Roman Empire. The tremendous deed of the Romans was undone overnight by Christianity. Is this still not understood? And he's quoting Nietzsche, the Antichrist, chapter 58, line 8. And he goes on to say, what he, meaning Paul of Tarsus, divined, was that with the aid of the little sectarian movement on the edge of Judaism, one could ignite a world conflagration. This was his vision on the road to Damascus. He grasped that to disvalue the world. He needed the belief in immortality that the concept hell will master even Rome. And he quotes that, that quote is from Nietzsche, the Antichrist, chapter 58, lines 15 and 16. Douglas admits that Nietzsche himself was a rabid anti-Christian as well as an illuminated philosopher. Nietzsche even referred to himself as a madman. However, he was also firmly against the communist doctrines put forth by Marx and Engels. As if that makes him our friend, I will address some of these statements from Nietzsche. Clayton Douglas resorts to the perverse arguments of this humanist madman, Frederick God is Dead, Nietzsche, who's a professed anti-Christian and therefore he is a man who is not qualified to objectively assess the validity of Paul's Christian doctrines. He, he could speak about Christianity from the outside, that's fine, but to address, a, a objectively assess the validity of Paul's doctrines is an entirely other matter. Douglas quoted Nietzsche upon introducing his Paul-bashing articles, which was discussed here in the opening segments of, of, of our address of these articles. There it was discussed that 
Nietzsche was a man of some intelligence, but he was also a critic of Christianity in general, and he was also a critic of nationalism. Nietzsche was an anti-nationalist. He's not our friend. Nietzsche claimed that Paul was the first Christian. And he denies not only Christ, but he denies the prophets. He denies the other apostles. Paul certainly was not the first Christian. The gospel record demonstrates that fully, that Paul was not the first Christian. Just because Nietzsche was firmly against, as Douglas states, the communist doctrines put forth by Marx and Engels doesn't make him any good. Or any sort of authority concerning Christianity has nothing to do with it. He's trying to gain people's affection for Nietzsche because he, he stood against communism. Big deal. Stalin stood against the doctrines of Marx and Engels. Contrary to popular Jewish philosophy, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. Neither does Nietzsche honestly characterize the fall of Rome. His characterization of the fall of Rome is extremely dishonest. The eastern portion of the empire at Constantinople was much more thoroughly Christian than the West when it fell. When the West fell, the, the West fell, the, the generally accepted date for the fall of Rome, the Western Empire, is 476 AD. It really fell 70, 80 years before that, when the Goths had first um, basically taken tribute from Rome in exchange for not destroying it. And Gothic kings sat on the throne of the emperor in Rome. So Rome actually fell long before 476 AD. At that time, Rome wasn't Christian for 140 years. It wasn't Christian for 140 years, and it was only marginally Christian, and there were still pagan empires after Constantine. There, there were still pagan... All, all Constantine the Great did at circa 330 AD, let's call it 330 AD, all he did was basically decriminalize Christianity. It didn't become the official religion of Rome in the West ever. Not until the Byzantine emperors made it the official religion of the empire. Not until the time of Justinian or thereabouts. So the Byzantine Empire in the East was much more thoroughly Christian than the Roman Empire in the West which was still basically, and, and preponderant, the, the preponderance of people in the West were still pagan in 476 AD. The Byzantine Empire in the East was much more thoroughly Christian and lasted a thousand years longer than the Roman Empire did in the West. Christianity didn't destroy Rome. Nietzsche is basically a fool. He's a fool for trying to, for, for proposing that argument. This guy's supposed to be a classics professor. And, and his work isn't, I wouldn't give you the, the, the value of the paper that it's written on.
Rome in the West fell because of its own immorality, because decadence made it right for the Germanic armies which destroyed it. Exactly as Daniel said would happen, in the words of the prophet in chapter 2 from verses 40 through 45. And Daniel said that a thousand years before it fell, that Rome would fall apart because the iron and the clay couldn't, couldn't cleave to one another. When Rome elevated its slaves to the position of citizens, sort of like what America did in 1865, when they elevated their slaves to the level of citizens so that they could increase their tax revenue. That was the beginning of the end for Rome. That sealed the fate of Rome. Because that is the reason Rome fell, according to the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2. There are a lot of other factors which weighed in, but that was primary. That's the reason God gave us. Whether Nietzsche believes Daniel or not, being a classics professor, he should surely have been aware of the reasons for Rome's fall. Had nothing to do with Christianity, had everything to do with immorality and decadence. With luxury and wantonness. Nietzsche instead chose to create lies, and anybody who follows him is a liar. Nietzsche disqualifies himself as a classicist. Here's a man who claims to be a classic professor. He, he, he talks about immortality and the concept of hell and blames Paul of Tarsus for these things in Western culture. These beliefs were not only prevalent among the Old Testament Hebrews, they were also prevalent. The belief in immortality, the belief in the concept of a hell, a Hades, was prevalent among the Greeks going all the way back to the first Greek writers, all the way back to Homer. And, and I'm sure the beliefs were around long before Homer. The Germanic tribes also believed in these things, immortality and the concept of Hades or hell. First, Joshua Christ used the word Hades. It's a Greek word. It's a Greek word. And the term the gates of Hades. Paul didn't invent them. Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 18. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Luke chapter 10. Paul didn't invent the concept of Hades. Nietzsche says he did. Peter discussed the Spirit of Christ descending to preach under the spirits in prison, meaning in Hades, 1 Peter 3.19. The word Sheol in Hebrew, is defined by strong. Hades are the world of the dead, including its accessories and inmates. The, the word Sheol in Hebrew has the same exact connotation that the word Hades in Greek has. Of course, the original Greek word for the place was Tartarus. Hades was the name of the god that ruled over it. Hesiod, writing in the 8th century B.C., called it dim Tartarus in the depth of the wide path to earth. Theogony, line 119. From the times of Homer, and probably much earlier, this was the abode of the souls of the dead. In the Odyssey, 
his famous poem, Homer devotes an entire chapter to Odysseus's supposed visit to the place, conversing with the deceased. Homer and Hesiod wrote at least 800 years before Paul of Tarsus. In Euripides, Euripides was a tragic poet of the 5th century BC. His play, Alcestis, written 500 years before Paul. In that play, Heracles, the Greek hero, descends to Hades to bring the heroine Alcestis back from the dead. In the Odyssey, Homer portrays Odysseus as visiting Hades in his mortal body and conversing with the souls of the dead at length while he was there. He devotes an entire chapter to that episode. Now, of course, we as Christians wouldn't believe the episode, but that's not, that, that's not the point here. The point here is that the Greeks believed the concept. That's the point. Frederick Nietzsche, supposedly a classics professor, and, 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 and criticizing Paul of Tarsus for these, his belief in these things, he's a fool. He's no classics professor. He may have had the piece of paper, but he sure as hell didn't know the classics. Nietzsche was a German, I guess. I should say that he was apparently a German. In the Germanic literature, which dates to a time long before the Christianization of the North, Christianity can't be blamed for this literature. Niflheim. Niflheim is the underworld abode of hell. The goddess of the dead. She was also called Hela. And the souls of the dead were said to dwell in Niflheim. Niflheim and hell, from, and, and we get the, the English word, just like the Greeks eventually called the name Hades, that they transferred it from the god who ruled over it to the place itself, when the place was originally called Tartarus. Well, in English, we've done the same thing. Hela was originally the goddess who ruled over Niflheim, and, and we've adopted her name as the name of the place, right, that, that we consider to be hell. Niflheim and Heller are mentioned in the, in the, in the Eddas. They're mentioned in the Voluspa, paragraph 42. They're mentioned in the Lay of Vathrusnir, paragraph 43. The Poetic Edda, translated by Lee M. Hollander, University of Texas Press. See hell in the index. You'll see many mentions of Niflheim and hell. Now these things, these things were published well before Nietzsche's time. Sharon Turner discussed a lot of these things in his history of the Anglo-Saxons. He, he actually reproduced the Voluspa these things were known to European academics long before Nietzsche's time. And Nietzsche being a classics professor, he is without excuse if he was ignorant of these things. 
Sharon Turner published the history of the Anglo-Saxons in the 1840s. He published the Voluspa as an appendix to Book Two of that monumental work. These things were well-known. Beowulf, these poems were well-known to academics in the 19th century. As Germanic heroes received immortality in Valhalla and Greek heroes at Olympus or in the Isles of the Blessed, beyond the Western Sea, Enoch walked with Yahweh. These beliefs endured wherever our Saxon Israelite race is found. Nietzsche should have known better, and he blames them on Paul of Tarsus. It's ridiculous, and says that they caused the fall of Rome. This man's a classics professor. He's no authority on anything. Except that his belief in that, that God is dead evidently drove him to the madhouse by the time he was 48 years old, I think, maybe 45 years old, I forget. Where he died, deservedly. In the next section of his article... Douglas offers a perverted interpretation of some lines from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, Douglas isn't new with this. I've also seen the character, I think his name was William Jeffers. Jeffers was a, um, well, well he, he was sort of an offshoot hybrid Christian identity clack in the Pacific, no, no in the American Southwest. He still had Joseph Jeffers, that was his name. He still has um he still has a following and, and a website. I don't know if I could come up with it right now. No, I probably can't. There are too many people with that name. The Hebrew Roots Movement, RaptureReady.com, they criticize doctor, the so-called doctor, Joseph Jeffers. He was a real clown. He, he, he also tried to use the Dead Sea Scrolls to discredit Paul of Tarsus. And I've seen a whole lot of people in Christian identity repeat that garbage. Well, here Clayton Douglas also does it. He offers a perverted interpretation of some lines from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I will discuss them at length. While it cannot be substantiated here, Douglas seems to get these particular ideas from Joseph Jeffers and his successor, Philip B. Evans. They both call themselves doctors. And their organization was called Yahweh's New Kingdom, based in Prescott, Arizona. Douglas is also from Arizona. Both Jeffers and Evans claim to be prophets, and they offer contorted versions of history. They try to put the birth of Christ back in the days of, um, of, of Augustus Caesar, or before that, I believe. Now, I think they try to put the life of Christ to be 50 or 60 years before it actually was and tied into the beginning of the reign of Augustus Caesar somehow. It, it's that, that they're sick men. They call themselves doctors. They hang a sign out, and, and they get a following. They write a few books. Uh, I don't know where they get the funding from, but they do it. 
They both claim to be prophets. They both offer contorted versions of history. They were both Paul bashers. They were also universalists. They were also inventors of fairy tales. I may address their work perhaps um, sometime this year or early next year, only because I do know a lot of Christian identity adherents who have given them credence at one time or another, and they're actually both clowns. Clay Douglas states, and I quote, Perhaps most damning of all are the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written by the Essenes. Douglas calls them the first Christians. Now that's his words, not mine. I would deny that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by the Essenes. And I will, I will show that. I will elucidate my reasons for that later on. And are the only surviving literature of theirs. In them they rant about a liar and a spouter of lies that is changing and perverting their teachings for his own purposes. Researchers have conclusively have shown conclusively that this liar or spouter of lies was Saul of Tarsus, aka Saint Paul. the founder of Christianity, as Douglas calls him, and the main conspirator in this plot, Douglas's words again, he's a sick man, he was taking their little religion, which was never meant for other nations, and twisting it to make it more appealing to them. This information was so explosive that the Dead Sea Scrolls and their translators were kept under wraps for decades in fear that they would shake the foundations of Western religion. All of that is crazy, and we're going to address it. First, there's no substantial evidence that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by Essenes, none whatsoever. Reading the professional archaeology journals, scholars and academics refer to the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls as the Qumran sect, because they know better than the... Even though some scholars attribute the writing of the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Essenes, some scholars do that, scholars in general know better than to pin it to the Essenes, so they call the authors the Qumran sect, or sometimes the Dead Sea sect, knowing that the identification of the Essenes is controversial. And that is proper since a definite identification of these people with any of the historically known sects of Judea cannot be made. There's no literature at all. There's nothing in the Dead Sea Scrolls that tells us who their authors are. There's evidence, and I have my reasons for believing who the authors are, but they're not the Essenes. Most of the Dead Sea Scrolls fall into one of several categories, which I would generally identify as follows. The first category, copies or targums of biblical books, 
a targum being a translation of the biblical book, and interpretation in another language. All translations are interpretations to some degree. Copies or targums of known apocryphal books. such as the Book of Enoch. Copies are targums of biblical books, the books that we have in the Bible now, Isaiah, Ezekiel. There were copies of them. In Hebrew, there were targums of them in Aramaic and of various books or, or, or even some in Greek. Copies are targums of known apocryphal books. Sectarian commentaries on biblical books, there were many commentaries in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were sectarian, meaning they were peculiar to the sect that created the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were prayers and prophecies peculiar to that sect. There were scrolls of instruction for the governance of the members of the sect. And there were some other miscellaneous documents there were calendrical documents. And then there was the Copper Scroll. And the Copper Scroll is, was a description of buried treasure, which the sect supposedly had in various places. Most of the scrolls are numbered. The Dead Sea Scrolls are numbered, and that's how scholars refer to them. You'll see a number from 1 through 11, generally. And then you'll see a Q the Q standing for Qumran, and then you'll see another number. And the first number is the cave where the scroll was said to be found. Cave 1, Cave 2, Cave 3, Cave 4. Most of the scrolls, I believe, were found in Cave 4. It runs up to 11 or 12, I forget. It runs up to 11. And the second, the second number after the Q is the serial number of the scroll or the fragment from each particular cave. That's an arbitrary number. Scroll number one from cave one would be 1Q1. Scroll number 200 from cave four would be 4Q200. That's how scholars refer to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Additionally, many of the notable scrolls also have a familiar name. 3Q15 is the serial number of the Copper Scroll. It's generally called the Copper Scroll, and its serial number from Qumran is 3Q15. So we know it was found in the Cave 3, which means something to the people that have actually been there, and it's the 15th scroll found in that cave. Josephus' description of the Essenes is found in Wars of the Judeans in Book 2, Chapter 8. And that description is very much like Luke's description of some of the first Christians, which we find in Acts Chapter 2 and in Acts Chapter 4. But that does not necessarily mean that the first Christians were Essenes or that Essenes were the first Christians. Essenes, of course, are not mentioned in Scripture. We only know them historically from Josephus, and a couple of minor mentions in some of the Roman historians. Pliny is one of them. 
Well, some of the sectarian documents found at Qumran do indicate that the possessions of sect members were controlled by the sect and not by the individual. And we see that in the scroll popularly known as 4Q Rule of the Community, which is one of those scrolls that had instructions for governing the Qumran community. So it may appear that these people were Essenes, if we don't look any further, yet such communal societies were certainly not novel. They were actually pretty fr- occurred pretty frequently in, first, in the first century, not only in Judea, but elsewhere. For instance, Theodore Siculus said of certain Greek colonists at Lepara that they took over the cultivation of the islands which they had made the common property of the community. Their possessions also they made common property. And living according to the public mess system, in other words, they shared all their food in common, they passed their lives in this communistic fashion for some time. Theodore Siculus, Library of History, Book 5, Chapter 9. Theodorus wrote from about 50 B.C. He wrote long before Polytarsus and Josephus. And so it is quite possible that other groups besides the Essenes lived in a communal fashion, even in Palestine. The way of life was known among both the Greeks and the Hebrews. We don't see um, people insisting that Diodorus's Greek colonists at Lepara were Essenes. They certainly were not. But others of the Qumran documents suggest that these people did not live in a truly communal manner. There's a, a scroll called 4Q Instruction, which discusses the borrowing of necessities and advises of the need to repay such loans as quickly as possible. Now, that does not seem to be an Essene teaching, because in a community where all things are held in common, there should be no need for borrowing or to make repayment for what one requires. So 4Q instruction identifies the Qumran sect as something other than Essenes. Because Josephus would insist, and we know the Essenes know better than anyone from, but Josephus. And Josephus was an Essene at one point in his youth. I believe he spent three years with the sect of the Essenes. And Josephus would insist that they held all things in common while borrowing and paying back don't don't fall into that category. So these do not seem to be Essene teachings because in a community where all things are held in common, there's no need for borrowing and there's no need for repayment. Another thing that shows that the, the Qumran sect were not Essenes is the Copper Scroll, because the Copper Scroll lists great riches that the sect had supposedly had hidden in various places in Palestine, buried in certain places in the desert. And that would contradict what Josephus said about the Essenes. 
Now, there is a passage in Pliny's Natural History which seems to support the identity of Qumran as an Essene settlement. But there's a lot of dispute concerning that passage. My article here cites Biblical Archaeology Review, which is a, a well, it's, it's a Jewish-owned biblical archaeology magazine. July-August 2002, page 18, there's an article called Searching for Essenes, which details some of the, the, the controversy around Pliny's passage and his statement concerning the Essene settlement, which seems to be near Qumran. But there are, difficult, there are difficulties with identifying the members of the Qumran sect as Essenes, and Pliny's passage alone does not prove it. Pliny tries to say that there's an Essene city at a certain place. Josephus says that the Essenes have no certain city, but many of them dwell in every city. And if any of their sects come down from other places, what they have lies open for them just as if it were their own. So Pliny's passage contradicts what Josephus tells us about the Essenes. The War Scroll, found in the fourth cave. The War Scroll is found in two different Dead Sea Scrolls, 4Q491 and 4Q497. The War Scroll and some other Qumran scrolls peculiar to the Qumran sect was written by a vain and false prophet who described a grand apocalyptic scenario depicting a final battle between the remnant of Israel and Palestine and the empire of the Kittim, which was the name, Kittim being the name, of, uh, the name of one of the Japetite tribes from Genesis chapter 10. That was the name that the sect gave to the Romans. They sometimes called the Romans the empire of Belial. This end-time battle, as they envisioned it, was to end with the aggrandizement of the remnant of Israel, which they saw as their own sect, the Qumran sect. And it would cause the fall of Rome. The sect interpreted parts of Isaiah chapter 10 in that manner. Since the Qumran sect seemed to know nothing of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD, there's no mention of it in any of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls actually mention the city on occasion. That there are several mentions of Jerusalem among the scrolls. The War Scroll requires a dating for the Qumran sect somewhere between Pompey's conquest of Judea, when it was subjected to Rome, and the revolt from Rome, which began about 65 AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls can't be dated past 65 AD. That revolt led to Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. That period during which the Qumran scrolls had to have been created is a period of about 132 years. They had to be created in that period because of things like the war scroll. Since the scrolls lack any mention of any contemporary historical figures or specific historical events, I know nothing, others might, but I don't, I haven't seen anything yet, 
by which the scrolls can be dated more precisely than that. Now, there was a fourth large sect in Judea. Josephus describes it in Antiquities, book 18. The fourth large sect belonged to Judas the Galilean. And Josephus said they were noted for their refusal to heed to any authority but God. And that they also inspired revolt from Rome. They were vehemently anti-Roman. And if you read the War Scroll and some of the other Qumran scrolls, you would find that the attitudes describing, described by Joseph of the sect founded by Judas the Galilean is in such agreement with the Qumran sect's apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic documents that this sect is as good a candidate, and actually I believe it's a much better candidate for Qumran as the Essenes. But one thing is certain, all that laid aside, there is no mention of Christ or anything Christian in the Qumran scrolls, none. And even if the sect had heard about Christianity, they made no mention of it. Even if Essenes were among the first Christians, and even if the people of Qumran were Essenes, the people of Qumran were not Christian. The people of Qumran were still awaiting the Messiah. They wrote about it often. They were still awaiting the Messiah who would lead them to the to the destruction of the Kittim, their name for the Romans. And that's evident in many places. It's evident in the War Scroll. It's evident in the scroll named 4Q Sefer Ha Melhama. It's evident in 4Q 285 Fragment 5. It's evident in many places in their literature. The Qumran sect's post-apocalyptic New Jerusalem scroll, which are found in Parts of that scroll are found in, in, in many, parts of that literary work, I should say, are found in many of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Talks about Passover sacrifices and offerings. So the Christian understanding of Daniel, the Christian understanding of Paul's writings, such as at 1 Corinthians 5.7, is wanting at Qumran. 1 Corinthians 5.7, Christ is our Passover. That understanding is wanting at Qumran. They don't have it. They're still writing about sacrificing and offering lambs and other things like that, right? Oblations. Other Qumran scrolls, such as 4Q Ritual of Purification and 4Q Ordinances, place an emphasis on ritual purification or baptism, which, after the baptism of John, we see Christ rejecting before the Pharisees. The Qumran sect, while it was anti-Roman and it was separatist, in all of its writings clung to traditional Judaism. They were not Pharisees, and they were not Sadducees. They certainly weren't Sadducees because they believed in spirits. They believed in the continued life of the soul after the death of the body, things which the Sadducees rejected. That's another, um, that, that's another, that this Paul Basher, that this Clayton Douglas, that, that these articles that he produced, 
he's um, quoting Nietzsche, and Nietzsche condemns Paul for believing in immortality and the existence of the soul after death. And then, immediately following those quotes from Nietzsche, Douglas quotes the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls believe those same things Paul did. That, that's absolutely hypocritical. That, that's the nature of the Paul bashers. They do things like that all the time. If you're going to discredit Paul for believing in immortality, well, well, then you should discredit the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls for the same thing and not use their writing. Real simple. Now, it should be apparent that while the Dead Sea Scrolls may have been produced during the time of Polytarsus, they may have been produced as late as 64, 65 A.D., at least some of them. This is not necessarily so because they could have been produced as early as 130, I'm sorry, 60 B.C., 65 B.C., So while some of the Dead Sea Scrolls may have been produced during the time of Polytarsus, the sect certainly was not Christian, nor were they anti-Christian. They had no, appa- they had no apparent knowledge of Christ. There's no apparent knowledge of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Zero. None. Now, a lot of people might be thinking right now, well, what if the Jews removed it? But that's not possible. It's not possible for this reason, because too many of the other scrolls are expecting a Messiah, and, and they're expecting a Messiah that would do much the same thing that the apostles in the New Testament expected of Christ. The apostles of the New Testament expected Christ to deliver them, to deliver the kingdom of Israel at that time. And he didn't do it. And he told them it wasn't theirs to know the times and the seasons. The people of Judea sought to make Christ king to deliver them from Rome at that time. And he didn't do it. Well, the the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls had the same exact expectation in a Messiah. Therefore, their Messiah could not have been Christ. They could not have been Christian. They certainly weren't. And there couldn't have been other scrolls that were removed because the context of the scrolls that we do have shows us what their attitude was. The Dead Sea Scrolls are an enigma. They're an enigma to most people who will never have the time or the initiative to read them. The fullest published edition of the scrolls, Discoveries in the Judean Desert, Oxford University Press, is 38 volumes. 
Notice above that Douglas uses the phrase, researchers have shown conclusively. And he makes claims without making any citations or any display of the content which those claims are based upon. Paul Bashers do this all the time. In following this manner of criteria, one can say almost anything, since nearly all of the intended audience will not or simply cannot check the authenticity of such blanket claims. Since no references are given, must, one must read the entire body of literature, several volumes, to check them. The addition of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I used to address this, the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition by Florentino G. Martinez and Ibert J. C. Tinkalar. It's several volumes, and it's quite. that They're quite large books. They're several hundred pages each. This edition offers a catalog of all the scrolls which contain copies of the biblical books, listing the full contents. It also has a Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, in the case of certain scrolls, transcription, and an English translation of all the scrolls which are not merely copies of the biblical books. So in two volumes, all of the Targums, apocryphal literature, sectarian documents, and other literature of Qumran are fully reproduced. Yet, where my answers to Clayton Douglas in this article cite the scrolls, the common identifiers are always given, 4Q285. 3Q15 for the Copper Scroll. They're always given so that you could check any publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls and see that I'm citing it properly. Yet Douglas, using the Dead Sea Scrolls to somehow discredit Polytarsus, doesn't do any of that. And he can't. The Paul Bashers can't. Douglas isn't alone. Jeffers couldn't do it either. Evans couldn't do it either. Douglas states that the scrolls, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the writers rant about a liar and a spouter of lies. And he states that researchers have shown conclusively that this liar was Saul of Tarsus. Now let me say that the Dead Sea Scrolls do mention a spreader of the lie. We see, the, well, we see the phrase spreader of the lie referring to a certain individual in the Pesher to Micah found in the first cave at Qumran, commonly known as 1Q Pesher to Micah. It's also 1Q14. There's a phrase called the teacher of lies found in the Isaiah Pesher, 4Q Isaiah Pesher, or 4Q163. There's another phrase, the man of the lie. That phrase is found in the Pesher to Habakkuk. 1Q Pesher to Habakkuk, columns 2 and 5. There's another phrase, man of lies, found in the Pesher of Psalms, 4Q171. Columns 1 and 4. Also mentioned in the Pesher, or, or the Pesharim, which is pl plural for the word Pesher, is a wicked priest. 
the wicked priest is mentioned in the pressure to Habakkuk. The pressure is an interpretation of Old Testament books. And the interpretations of Old Testament books, we find the phrase wicked priest in the interpretation of Habakkuk. We find the phrase man of lies in the interpretation of Psalms. We find the phrase man of the lie in the interpretation of Habakkuk. We find the phrase teacher of lies in the interpretation of Isaiah. How could any of these do, have anything to do with Paul of Tarsus is beyond me. These pressures are the only places in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only places where you can find these phrases. You won't find Go read the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm sorry, I've done it. I can't prove it to you, but I've done it. Go read the Dead Sea Scrolls. You won't find these phrases. I've heard other Paul bashers try to make the claim that these phrases refer to Paul of Tarsus. They got it from Jeffers and Evans, from those clowns in Arizona. Joseph Jeffers and Gary Evans. Clay Douglas repeats it, or whoever wrote this for Clay Douglas repeats it. There is nowhere in the Dead Sea Scrolls where you will find these phrases of anybody historical in the first century. These phrases are used to interpret various scriptures in Isaiah, in Micah, in the Psalms, that have nothing to do, in Habakkuk, that have nothing to do with Paul of Tarsus. 1Q14 contains parts of an interpretation of Micah chapter 1. I will read from fragments 8 through 10. This is a pesher. This is somebody at Qumran that made an interpretation of the book of Micah, right? Chapter 1. And from fragments 8 to 10, it states... What are the high places of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? I will reduce Samaria to a country ruin, to a plot of vines. Its interpretation concerns the spreader of the lie who has misdirected the simple. That's the context of the mention of the phrase spreader of the lie in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Pesher of the Book of Micah. has nothing to do with Paul of Tarsus. It has to do with the time before Samaria was reduced to ruin. That was in 722 BC. This is the Paul Bashers. The Paul Bashers are liars. They're the spreader of the lie in the Dead Sea Scrolls. How about that one? Clay Douglas is the spreader of the lie in the Dead Any idiot can say that. It's ridiculous. 4Q171 contains parts of an interpretation of Psalm 37. I'll read from column one. The arrogant ones choose, who love slovenliness and misdirect. There's a couple of ellipses here. The scroll isn't complete. Wickedness at the hands of Ephraim. Be silent before Yahweh and wait for him. Do not be annoyed with one who has success. With someone who hatches plots. Its interpretation concerns the man of lies who misdirected many with deceptive words. So here it should be fully manifest. The epithets, spreader of the lie, 
or man of lies, as used in the Dead Sea Scrolls, cannot possibly be referring to Paul of Tarsus, unless one wants to believe that Paul was alive in the days of Micah, having misdirected the people of Samaria, and that Paul was alive in the days of David, having misdirected the children of Ephraim. Yet hopefully it has been shown here again and again that Clay Douglas can invent and believe just about anything that suits his own purpose. And I found that trait in many Paul Bashers in my 14 years. Is it 14 years? I don't know how long I've been studying Christian identity. It's 16 years, maybe 17. I'm a newbie. Often, in these same Pesharim, the interpretations of Scripture, right, this liar is contrasted to, to the teacher of righteousness. We see one such contrast in the Pesher to Habakkuk in 1QPHAB. That's the designation. It's found in the first cave of Qumran. It's a Pesher to Habakkuk. That's, they didn't give it a number for some reason. In columns 2 and 5, it is clear in other of the Pesharim, the, the interpretations, that this teacher of righteousness is no contemporary man or sect leader. Rather, it is an epithet for the expected Messiah. And that's how they used it. Let's read from 4Q Isaiah Pesher, 4Q165, Fragments 1 and 2, which contain an interpretation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, and I quote, The interpretation of the word concerns the teacher of righteousness who reveals just teachings. Those words are very much like the words of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. I know that Messiah cometh, and when he comes, he will teach us all things, right? Since the Qumran sect had not yet met their Messiah, and they knew nothing of Yahshua Christ, their liar cannot be Paul of Tarsus, and their teacher of righteousness is not Christ. Rather, it is clear from the context of these interpretations of scripture found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the spreader of the lie, the man of lies, or the man of the lie, is another episode for Satan, the adversary. John 8.44 In all fairness, no other identification could possibly be made within the context of the scrolls, which the scrolls themselves provide. In other instances, the epithet teacher of righteousness indicates a much earlier prophet or a leader of the people. We have an example of that in a Damascus document. The scroll labeled CDB, column 20. Another copy is 4Q266, where the epithet occurs in fragment 2, column 1. And neither do these refer to Yahshua Christ. 
so neither can any of the antagonists there be mentioned, be imagined to be Paul of Tarsus. To try to find historical figures of the first century in the Dead Sea Scrolls is absolute vanity once you actually read the scrolls and study the context. Douglas states that the Dead Sea Scrolls and their translations were kept under wraps for decades in fear that they would shake the foundations of Western religion. That's a blatant lie, and it cannot be substantiated. A lot of people that never really studied the scrolls have made claims about it, right? The scrolls were first discovered in 1947, and they were collected and deposited in a museum in the West Bank region of Palestine. For 20 years, they were studied by Western scholars. Photographs were made of all the scrolls and all the fragments in that 20-year period. In 1967, during the Six-Day War, when the Jews seized control of the West Bank, it was they who seized control of the museum that the scrolls were housed in. And they restricted access to all but a few, a select few, of their own Jewish scholars. This story is well known. It can be found in many books. One of them that I read is The Complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English by a Jew named Giza Vermez. Giza Vermez was a Jew, and he was denied access to the scrolls during that 25-year period. And he whined about it incessantly. It is hardly conceivable that the Jews would cut off access to the scrolls in order to protect Christianity. And books about the scrolls and their contents had already been published by 1967. In fact, the, the first major work on the Dead Sea Scrolls was The Scrolls from the Dead Sea by Edmund Wilson, published in 1955, and he was not a Jew. If anything, the Jews would only want to make certain that nothing could get out which exposed the lies which they themselves, which they tell about themselves for the frauds which they are. If anything in the Dead Sea Scrolls discredited Christianity, you could bet that the Jews would be trumpeting it. They would be gleeful. Douglas's own logic works against him. That's usually the case with the Paul Bashers. Clay Douglas states, Take heed that no man deceive you. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they, were raven they are ravening wolves. After quoting Christ, probably about himself, right? After quoting Christ, he goes on to say, the primary Pharisee-inspired myth, which is incorporated into Pauline laws, I didn't know Paul had laws, right? Is the myth hoax that Jesus' death would forevermore cleanse us of our sins. As long as we have faith. Come on, do you really believe this to be true? Do you believe that grace allows a pedophile murderer of children to enter the kingdom at the very same time as the God-fearing man 
who upheld God's laws and commandments all his life, that this is the normal idiotic argument against Paul, and, and it's also an argument against Isaiah. Do you really accept this to be true? As long as the abortion doctor repents and gives himself to Jesus, that God will accept him into the kingdom of heaven? Does this really make a, a, a lick of sense to you? It does not to me. Clay Douglas's words. Of course, most of the abortion doctors I ever saw were Jews and they're never going to heaven, right? It is absolutely evident that while all of the Paul bashers very often cite the law and the prophets which Christ came to fulfill, evidently these people have neither read the law nor the prophets. Speaking of the children of Israel and Judah, but not the Jews, Yahweh says, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. That's Jeremiah 33, 8. So I guess we're going to fault Paul of Tarsus for believing Jeremiah 33, 8. Is that what we should do? Quoting Ezekiel 37:23, the word of God says, "Neither shall they defile themselves any more with idols, though with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned." And I will cleanse them, so they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Do we fault Paul of Tarsus for believing Ezekiel, chapter 37? There are no exceptions expressed in these scriptures. Therefore, Paul said, all Israel shall be saved, Romans 11.26. He was quoting Isaiah. He was quoting Isaiah, chapter 45 which says that all the seed of Israel shall be delivered and shall glory. No exceptions. Paul wasn't teaching anything which hadn't been uttered by Yahweh himself. Disputing this, Clayton Douglas again disputes with Yahweh and with the entire Bible. Not merely with Paul. Paul was only quoting the prophets because he believed the prophets. Do we fault Paul of Tarsus for that? Do we as Christians fault Paul? Do we follow Clay Douglas and fault Paul of Tarsus that Paul believed the prophets? Of course, Paul, like Yahweh, also meant no one else but the children of Israel, as he taught in nearly all his epistles. We've already seen in this series Paul's ideas of faith and favor and grace and salvation, where they were discussed. We've already seen that Paul taught that sinners would not be admitted into the kingdom of heaven, clearly evident in his remarks in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Ephesians 5, 5. We have to put those things in context. 
all Israel will be saved and none of them will be sinners in the kingdom of heaven. But attacking Paul for this position, Douglas isn't only discredit, attempting to discredit Paul, he's attempting to discredit all of the words of the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. The next quote from Clayton Douglas, a basic law of the cosmos is that of cause and effect, which states that for every cause there is an effect and for every effect there is a cause. Farmers notice law when they reap what they have sown. This holds true in all of creation. Why then would we not be held accountable for our own free will choices? I would say that Paul knew all about cause and effect. He stated as much in his epistles. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall reap of the flesh corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. These words are clearly not out of line with the words of Christ, such as those recorded in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, where he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, and where thieves do not break through, nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Compare those two passages. Matthew six nineteen through 21, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. The teachings of Paul were fully coherent with the teachings of Christ. And Paul did understand cause and effect. Douglas goes on to say, and I quote, how could we expect the blood of a dead man, God's son or otherwise, to magically remove our responsibility for our evil deeds? Why would we not be held accountable under the cosmic law of cause and effect for our wrongful choices? Why or how could we be raptured home? And I would say that there are several aspects to the passion of Christ which are quite lengthy. They won't all be discussed here. One has to do with the devil, a word which is actually often diabolos, and which means false accuser. The accuser of our brethren in Revelation chapter 12 has to do with the reason why certain spirits were in prison in 1 Peter 3.19. When the children of the devil murdered God himself, whom Christ was, the accusations of the, of the adversary against the children of God could not stand. And he then freed their spirits once they accepted his gospel. There's a lot going on in the biblical narrative, a lot that we don't readily understand. When Christ died on the cross, he being Yahweh come in the flesh, 
He released the children of Israel from the law. That's what Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. If you don't understand the marriage relationship between Israel and Yahweh, you will never understand the reason for Christ's death. Christ didn't die to save the entire world of their sins. He died to release Israel from the law of the husband so that the children of Israel would not be liable for death for breaking that law. That's the story of the gospel in one aspect. Douglas, Clayton Douglas would never understand that, and many of the Paul bashers don't understand that. When Yahweh died on the cross, Israel was freed from the law. Daniel chapter 9 indicates that there would be an end of transgression with the coming of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah. That's why there would be an end in transgression. There's no end to sin. We still continue to sin, but sin would not be imputed to us. We have the mercy of Christ. We were released from the law, from the judgments of the law. And Paul explains that because we have that mercy, because God himself decided to die on our behalf so that we would not have to, so that we would not have to face the judgments of the law. Because God himself decided to die on our behalf, we would have life. And when we recognize that, we as Christians should seek to establish the law. We should willingly be ready to keep his law once we realize that great grace which we've attained. That's what Paul's explaining in Romans chapter 3. That's how the blood of a dead man magically removes our responsibility for our evil deeds. Our, meaning the children of Israel, alone. Now, we're granted mercy. But we're still judged for our works. We're still rewarded or not rewarded based upon how we've conducted ourselves in this life. And Paul taught that, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He taught that at length. Basically the same thing that Daniel chapter 12 teaches in a different way. The Paul bashers don't understand these things, so they scoff. Yahweh was married to the nation of Israel. As a condition, Israel agreed to submit to the laws under the Old Covenant. Exodus chapter 19 contains what may be considered the oldest prenuptial agreement on record. That Yahweh was married to Israel and gave Israel a bill of divorce when Israel had wholly transgressed the law and the terms of the agreement 
is evident throughout the book of Isaiah and throughout the book of Hosea. It's also evident in Jeremiah. Yet the law of divorcement was not a part of the original laws of Yahweh, nor is it mentioned in the Levitical law. It was permitted later for reasons explained by Christ in Mark chapter 10. Reading the law of divorcement, as it is in Deuteronomy chapter 24, once Israel became polluted by joining to the false gods of the other races, Yahweh could not take Israel back. Yet Yahweh promised to remarry Israel. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. Many passages in Isaiah. For him to take Israel back after Israel played the harlot, he would be violating his own law of divorce and remarriage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. There was only one way Yahweh could fulfill the law. He had to die so that Israel could remarry another, as Paul explains, the risen Christ, who actually is Yahweh, having fulfilled the letter of the law so that Israel may live. The example for us, we can treat God's law lightly. We can break it all the time. We can say with our lips that we won't break it and turn around and break it 10 minutes later. I've seen it and I've probably done it. God takes his law seriously. He's not going to break it. He's going to fulfill it even if he has to die. That's the example of the great mercy which he has upon the children of Israel. Of course, Clayton Douglas does not understand that. No Jew could ever understand that. The Paul Bashers don't understand it. When Yahweh died on the cross, he was released. He released Israel from the old covenant laws, from that old covenant agreement made during the Exodus. That's what Paul teaches in Romans chapters 6 and 7. Paul understood all of that. Christians today don't understand that at all because the Bible has been universalized. Those things aren't taught in Scripture. Those things aren't taught because if they were taught, people would know that if you're not a descendant of those old covenant Israelites, there's no room for you in a new covenant. Churches can't teach those things today. This will end this, this segment of my series against the Paul Bashers. Thank you for listening. I will be here on Friday night I'm still not sure exactly what I'm going to do. I may start my presentation on the book of Acts. I may decide to interject something else. I probably won't in the interim before I start Acts. I probably won't make up my mind until Tuesday or Wednesday. The announcement will be on the event schedule at Christagenia. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night.